0: KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One On One. I mean,
1: I remember on Friday nights, we'd have a game and then Chris and I would shower and then we would go to like a little teen nightclub in Summer's Point. And it seemed like every time we'd get picked up by a guy in a pickup truck and we would hop in the back of the pickup truck. And by the time we got to the club, our hair was was like full of icicles, you know, because we had wet hair.
0: And our guest this week is Scott Bittner. He is the head men's basketball coach at Division Three Stockton University down in Galloway. Just led the Ospreys to the Sweet 16 of the Division Three tournament for the second straight year. And Scott, thanks so much for the time. Thank you for having me. So as we are recording this, uh, you're, I don't know, a couple weeks removed from the season. Have you processed everything? How long does it take you to kind of put a bow on a season?
1: You know, it's probably the first thing I do is put a bow on it because I think it's the best time to start preparing for next season. So the minute the season ends, I mean, the next day I pull out my notebook and you know, as the season's going on, I'm I'm constantly taking notes. What what I think's working, what's not working, and whatnot. And so I kind of compile those notes the next day. So what was that? The game we played on a Friday. So Saturday, I you know I probably spent two or three hours just jotting down different drills and whatnot that I think we need to incorporate next year because you know, flaws that I thought we had this season. So I, I just think debriefing right away is the best way to do it.
0: Are you a big goal person with regards to, I would like to see us win X amount of games. I would like to see us do X. I would like to see us get this far in the NCAA tournament. Or are you more focused on having success, getting better improvement and whatever that looks like, or whatever road we take, I'm comfortable with that. Yeah, I'm
1: probably more process based. You know, my players would probably tell you the same thing because, you know, we we had quite a bit of friction this season because I wasn't happy with with our standards on the defensive side of the ball, and you know, I I kind of thought that an end was coming just because I didn't think we had the right habits. Um, so I'm probably more process based, and yeah. You know, Uh, I've bumped into 100 people, 200 people in the last few weeks congratulating me on a great season. And in my mind, I think we could have done more. Um, So I really, it was nice to get to the Sweet 16, but I I thought we we, we left some meat on the bone.
0: One of the things about specifically tournament play is the way finality hits you like a brick wall. Because you mentioned you're in the Sweet 16, and on one hand, you've got multiple scouts for who you could play in the Elite Eight if you win and everybody's excited and all. And then the game's over, and just like that, it's done. How difficult from a coaching standpoint is that sudden finality to deal with? And do you think you have adjusted to it as you've gone on as a coach?
1: Yeah, I I mean, the last month of the season, you know that it could come to an end, and you know that stinks, but you also know you're getting your life back, too. I I just kind of look at it as... You know, that's a part of the job, right? And 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 it's a five month grind. It, you know, could be a little bit longer or shorter, depending on how your season goes. And I mean, the way I look at it is I just get to spend more time with my children. So I don't go into a deep depression when the season's over. I, I just kinda like exhale and I think I do my best work as a coach in the off season. So I kinda get right
0: right to work, you know. What is it you like about the off season?
1: I think I think I think clearer. And I think I, I can be a little more creative with implementing ideas that I want to do next season. Uh, I, I am a I, I am a really um, I'm a huge learner, so I will read a ton of books. I watch a lot of YouTube videos. I watch every game under the sun, and I just kind of break down different things I like and don't like. Um, it's it's the part of the game I enjoy the most. Um, really, is the six months now up until up until October.
0: I'm curious at the specifically the Division 1 level from 5 years ago to now it's almost a completely different world from a coaching standpoint because of the transfer portal, NIL, like you know it's just it's completely different. Better worse is up to the individual but it is a uh, different. Has life changed that much at the Division 3? Uh, it's changed a lot more than I thought it would. You know, there, there's a half a dozen
1: high school kids that I've been chasing all year, and I really like them, I really like them. And then next thing you know, these guys' college seasons ends, and I'm getting hundreds of emails from college players inquiring about transferring in. And, and you know, I, I have a certain sense of morality about me when it comes to recruiting and doing what's best for a kid. And, and it just, it kind of twists me in different directions because, you know, now I'm, I'm you know, these kids that I said I really, really want, now I'm not sure I have room for them, you know? So it, it has changed a ton. I've got Division One, Division Two kids visiting campus, and then all of a sudden, the local kids you really, really like don't become as important, and... and I can see the anguish in a lot of a lot of high school kids. Some really good players, particularly from South Jersey, don't have a home yet, and that's that's kind of unseen at this time of the year. That you know, and they're starting to panic, and uh, so I feel bad for them too. So yeah, I, it's definitely trickled down.
0: Do you think we will eventually find a a level where? it's not this kind of controlled chaos every year, or do you think this is probably going to be life in one way or another for the for the foreseeable future?
1: Well, we just seem to empower the kids more and more every year. And I guess this is, kids empowerment and and what they don't realize is indirectly they're hurting most kids you know sure it's empowering some but between COVID and and that year off and now this transfer portal like kids you know you have high school seniors playing AAU again and 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 spending a lot of time and money doing that just just looking for a home I can't see it going away I really can't it just seems like more and more it's the world's becoming more chaos
0: how does that affect because I'm sure when you're building a program, when you're maintaining a program, in the before times before all this, you would say, all right, we've got our point guard for the next couple of years, but we should start looking for you know a sophomore in high school who could be that kid down the road. I mean, you kind of can throw that all up in the air. I guess the positive is if you have a really big hole to fill, you can grab somebody with some more experience, but it it makes it much more of just kind of a year-to-year type situation when it comes to building, No.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's good and bad, right? I mean, like, I have a lot of friends at Division One level that that they have a bad year, and they're like, wow, we, we can fix this thing right away, you know? We don't have to. You have to go through the process you no know, for me i i don't love it because i i'm relationship based you know i i want to go to players weddings you know and and do you go to players weddings when they're only here for a year i don't know like you get them for eight months so i i don't want to go that that way completely that's for sure i i still think that the most impl- important players in our league the last half a dozen seasons have been four-year kids, whether it's for Stockton or whether it's for somebody else. Um, I think culture is your most important thing. And it's hard to have a great culture when you don't really know the kid. It's hard to hold kids accountable when you're just meeting them in September. And then third week of October, they're not doing a defensive drill, right? You, You can't coach them as hard as you can a kid that's been with you for three years. So so I, I prefer the relationship base, but I, you know, I can see the value in this for a coach too in terms of, yeah, we got to fix this position right away. And the only way we're going to be able to do it is through a transfer because there's high, high school kids can't come into our league and make a difference right away 99% of the time. If they could, they'd be getting scholarships.
0: So let's talk a little bit about your background. Jersey Shore, you grew up and reading up on you, it sounds like you were a basketball junkie from the early days, huh?
1: I was, you know, I was fortunate. My, my closest friend growing up was Chris Coridio. And so him and I were, were, you know, inseparable from an early age on and, and still are in a way. Like, so I was lucky. I had I had a guy to, to pow around with that loved basketball as much as I did. And then, you know, one of our other closest friends we met a little later in life was Billy Lang, is the St. Joe's coach. So, you know, I, I have guys that live and breathe basketball like I did. So it, you know, it made it kind of normal. But I was definitely a basketball junkie. My dad was a basketball guy. He he was involved at basketball temple. So, you know, when, when he was in college. So it's kinda of in my blood, I guess.
0: When did you start to realize you were pretty good growing up? You know, I was
1: all—I was always a better baseball and soccer player naturally, and it's not as much I—I I realized that I was pretty good as, as I realized I loved it basketball more because I liked the challenge. I like defying my height you know the other sports just came easier to me so <laughs> those days I regret not continuing to play baseball because I thought I, I that came so easy to me but I probably probably seventh going in eighth grade is when I realized that basketball was the sport I wanted to focus on that was the age I was able to like start sneaking into pickup games with you know high school and college players when I was like 12 13 years old and you know pickup basketball the jersey Shore at that time was you know was as good as it gets so I was fortunate you know in that upbringing.
0: As kind of an aside, someone who grew up at the Jersey Shore, what are the winners like? What's it like, you know, growing up? I'm sure it's in the summer. It's incredible. And you've got everything at your fingertips. But, you know, if I'm if I'm talking to 14 year old Scott Bittner on a Tuesday in December down the shore, what's what's life like? I oh, mean,
1: I loved it. I guess. I mean, you know, I know Ocean City's the greatest town to grow up in. You just put your bike on the boardwalk at 12 years old, and your parents don't have to worry about you. You can get wherever you're going to go. I think you can you can lead a relatively independent childhood, right? Like it's, it was safe. You know, I think about it now with my children. I don't let them do near the things I did. You know, my parents were sending me to buy tacos for cheesesteaks when I was like seven years old on my bike. You know, and that just doesn't happen anymore. You know, in the winter, I do. I do. Beg, I, I do very strongly remember you know we owned a hotel on a street in ocean city and i remember sitting on the uh the front porch every labor day in a deep depression because all my 14 and 15 year old girlfriends were going home for the winter (laughs) i can remember that but you know once winter came like yeah the school yeah it was a big ocean city high school was a big school and then the middle school was a big school and then going to saint augustine i was going you know i was going to a town that, you know, everybody lived there full time. So I, I don't know if I notice it as much as I get a little bit older. And then the crazy thing is now I love it more. You know, I, I don't, I love a February day in the high fifties with the sun at the Jersey shore better than I love at any time of the year. <laughs>
0: So I also, in reading up on you and you mentioned your friendship with Chris Caridio, the head coach at Widener, veteran of this podcast. And the thing in the art, one of the articles I read, you guys used to hitchhike everywhere.
1: Yeah. We, 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 we,
0: you know, I mean, I, I can
1: remember my freshman year of high school, my dad dropping me off at St. Augustine and I said, all right, I'll see you. At like at three, he goes, uh, you all, you probably won't get home till five. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, oh, uh, you're going to hitchhike home. He said, when I was your age, I hitchhiked from North Philadelphia. The Townsend's Inlet and in Seattle every Friday. He said, there's no reason why you can't hitchhike home. So I like, we we often hitchhiked home from the prep. And then, you know, Chris and I would hitchhike everywhere to go play pickup. I mean, the best pickup games at the shore were in Avalon and we weren't driving yet. So we, w- we would hitchhike from Ocean City to Avalon at 6 a.m. To go play basketball, you know it's crazy. Like kids today, they don't even—they don't even know what I'm talking about. What do you mean hitch? What is hitch like? And I, you know, I, we had a couple stories having to hop out of a moving car here and there because people were drunk. But you know, I don't know. It was a great way to grow up.
0: Did it seem crazy at the time? Like you specifically those situations where you got into somebody that probably you shouldn't have gotten in, or it was just life.
1: You could tell within 15 seconds if you got in the wrong car or not. <laughs> And then a lot of times it was friends picking you up. I mean, I remember on Friday nights, we'd have a game and then Chris and I would shower and then we would go to like a little teen nightclub in Summer's Point. And it seemed like every time we'd get picked up by a guy in a pickup truck and we would hop in the back of the pickup truck. And by the time we got to the club, our hair was was like full of icicles, you know, because we had wet hair. I, yeah, just take it back of it. I, I guess people would think it was crazy. It was more crazy, like in terms of parenting, right? Like I thought I had strict parents and then looking back, I'm like, geez, I did a lot of stuff. Like as a 15, 16 year old, they're like, go ahead, go, go find your way, you know? And uh, I'm reading a book now on parenting and it, it's by like a of students at Stanford and it's about basically over parenting today and like ha- how our children are not able to grow and, and they're not able to, to, to be become good independent adults because we just overdo it. And I kind of think back to my childhood, I guess that's the way it was, you know, like you, you just let your children kind of become young adults at 15, 16. So they're able to go to college and act responsibly. You know what I mean?
0: No, absolutely. And it is a different world. To your point, I remember things growing up. I grew up in South Jersey, more you know, Gloucester County, but things we did that if they were done now, people would look at like, how is, how are you allowing that to happen? How could, you know, it's really something and it's not that long ago.
1: <laughs> it's funny. I, I took one of my players, one of my players wants to be a coach. So he came recruiting with me today, uh, one day and Ocean City was playing mainland and they were playing in the old, they had to play at the Ocean City Intermediate School because there was a flood at Ocean City High School. And we're walking to the gym, and I, 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 I said, you wouldn't believe what I did in this gym one day. There was a carnival, and I lit a smoke bomb and just rolled it in the middle of the carnival. And <laughs> if you did that today, like you'd be on national news, right? And you'd be like a terrorist. And back then, it was just like a fourteen-year-old boy just like doing, you know, childish things. You no, good I, old I, days. It was it was yeah. a simpler,
0: funner time in a lot of ways. Give me a, a scout of your game, young Scott Bittner, on the court. What made you good?
1: I don't know. I, I think I had a few different careers growing up. I, I think like as a 15-year-old kid, you're always trying to please everybody else and you're you're, you're insecure and you're, you're fighting your confidence. You're figuring out what makes you tick and, and whatnot. And then I think when I got into college is when I really found myself as a basketball player and I kind of reached the pinnacle of, of who I could be in terms of my belief in myself. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I think you probably, you saw the best version of me in college. I mean, not many guys have better college careers, but I, I certainly was probably one of them. And I, I think it's because I really, I felt comfortable with who I was. And, you know, I just became really, really confident in my abilities. You know, what my, I mean, I was known as a shooter growing up, but I tried to defy those odds because I, last thing I wanted to be known as like a white jump shooter, you know? So I, I was probably considered a fairly athletic and really good with the ball, you know? And I think it's because I worked on that because I didn't want to just be a shooter.
0: You played most of your college career at Wheeling Jesuit. You talk about kind of finding yourself and all, was there a a moment you remember during your college days when you kind of realized that you had become comfortable with who you were as a player and stuff like that was there an aha moment I think it was an aha summer
1: I just remember working out one summer and just taking it to another level with my preparation and I I just felt myself getting better and better. And it was really, really just training better, you know, like, like being more efficient, you know, Chris and I would have summer days. I mean, heck we would start off like weightlifting at like eight or nine in the morning. And then we'd run the ocean city boardwalk. And then we would go do drills for two hours, you know, and we would do drills and like in weighted vest and in strength, you know, strength shoes, we'd play full court one-on-one in strength shoes like an hour. And then we'd go to the beach for a couple hours. And then we'd, we'd get in our car and drive the, to media pennsylvania for a summer league game and that was every single day and i don't think we could do anything but start to get really confident you know because we, we worked so hard um, but it, it was it was like an eight or nine hour day just trying to you know prepare for the next season
0: and was that all just on you And on Chris, like, was this, did coaches give you a list of, Hey, these are things you should try, or was this just you guys doing this?
1: Yeah, that was him. And I would just invent stuff. You know, we would just, all right, we got to get better at this. And it's sad how it's changed. You know, there was no trainers back then. Yeah. You know, I, I read, I read like crazy. So I would find the best drills or whatever through books, or I'd go through the five-star basketball camp drill book. and, And we would do that. And, a lot of it is we just play a ton of one-on-one with each other and and we just kind of like iron sharpened iron but you don't see kids doing anything what we did like everything's aau and everything's prepared you know we would go to oceans you know we'd play pickup basketball at 12 13 14 years old and it's funny how, how that that is probably my my greatest learning tool in my life. College professors think they have so much to do with your, you, you know, educating you. No, no, the park educated me. All my personality traits, went good and bad, I probably learned on the pickup basketball court. You know, it's it's sad that you know, and I, I feel that my children aren't gonna aren't gonna live basketball in its greatest form. In my mind,
0: who are some of the other people that you played against, played with? on those summer leagues that maybe people would be familiar with? Oh, I mean, we, Chris and I played hundreds of games with Tim Legler, you know, I
1: mean, the face of ESPN basketball, really, with the, in terms of the NBA. So we played with him a ton. I mean, Fran O'Hanlon, Fran Dunphy was always at the park. Steve Donahue, the pen coach, was at the park every, you know. This was why we were hitchhiking a half hour each way, you know, is to play basketball with those guys. Steve Rosenberry, who was, was a great player, with, ended up being a scout with the Trailblazers. He 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 was one of the guys, I mean, Chris Collins, a Northwestern coach, you often find him in Avalon playing pitch got bat lango was always there so it was kind of like a who's who and funny thing is most of the guys ended up being coaches i'm trying to think at ocean city chris corciani who was the all-time assist leader you know he was frequently in ocean city because his family was from wildwood you know they moved to florida but they they had a summer home in wildwood i was really fortunate in my freshman year of high school to have a good game against st anthony's and coach hurley invited me and my one of my other teammates, Teddy Gladue to stay with them in Jersey city and attend their camp. And that turned one thing turned into another. And I would spend half my summers in Jersey city living at the Hurley house. So there's two, you know, two huge names with Danny and Bobby Hurley. So I was really lucky. I mean, New Jersey has great basketball and,
0: you know, I just searched it out. Was there a moment and I'm sure it wasn't in the moment because you're just a kid, you're enjoying playing basketball, but have there been moments since when you've looked back and just kind of in awe of who you got to play with and who you got to just spend summers on the court with? Cause that's incredibly cool. Like I'm incredibly jealous of an experience like that.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if, if I've had enough gratitude for how, how lucky I was. I mean, geez, heck we'd go to St. Anthony's, we'd play at white Eagle and nine of the 10 players were in the big East or the ACC, you know, I mean, no, I, I was lucky. Um, Chris Gent was another guy who was at Ohio State, played for the Houston Rockets. Matt Maloney was a good friend of mine, like me, him, and Billy Langwood would play full court one on one at Bishop Eustis in the summers. Um, and he played in the NBA. So yeah, I, I probably should look back on it more and, and think of how lucky I was. Um, the thing I think I do appreciate is the friendships I made. You know, like I'm still really really tight with with a lot of the guys that I kind of played with growing up. And Tim Tim Legner texts me. I think after one of our you know and. Tournament wins or something, so we still stay in touch.
0: We need to take a break. We will have more with Stockton University head men's basketball coach Scott Bittner right after this. This is one on one, and we are back on one on one, continuing our conversation with Scott Bittner, head men's basketball coach at Division three Stockton University. So we were talking about playing on the playgrounds down the shore and summer leagues, and do you think looking back, even at that young age, you looked at the game through coaches' eyes? Yeah,
1: I, I think I think I was definitely a coach on the floor, and, and you know, Chris, I'd say the same thing. I mean, I remember in high school, we you know, if we had a three or four point lead, the game was kind of over in the fourth quarter, just because it was like three guards that could all shoot 90 with for a foul line and make good decisions. You know, I, I think about it all the time as I don't think I feel as comfortable with my players as you know, Coach Rodeo was able to feel it with Chris and I and and our, you know, our other friend, Teddy, but it's changed, you know, kid, kids are not as independent on the court. They're not as independent in life, you know? So I think one of the challenges as a coach is to try to kind of get your kids to be self thinkers on the floor. And it's, you can't it's not always pretty when you give them too much of a leash, but if you can give them a little bit of a leash and you know, they'll have a tendency to make better decisions.
0: That being said, did you always figure coaching was going to be in your future in one form or another?
1: No, it's funny. I you know, when I first got out of college, um, we owned the family business and my dad had you know, he had cancer once or twice when I was I guess it started when I was in college and and you know, it was a bar and a restaurant and I just saw the pull it was taken on him. And you know, when I graduated wheeling. I had chances to go overseas and play in some you know leagues that probably weren't worth going. Fran O. gave me great advice. He says, if you have something good at home, don't, don't go overseas because it take, really takes you a long time to get back in the flow of life. Um, so I thought about that. And then I think Coach O was asking me if I was interested in the graduate assistant spot. And I just saw the way my dad was working. And I, I wasn't enough removed as a player yet to even think like a coach. So I, I went into the family business and I worked 80-hour weeks for for 10 years with no basketball and you know my two closest friends were uh were head coaches in their 20s and and there was certainly some jealousy when they're involved in basketball and i'm like ruining people's lives in a bar you know
0: so what's the road back into the game what what door opens well so it's funny
1: when my father passed away i guess i kind of held on to the business for another year or two and i'm like this stinks i didn't even realize how hard i was you know, how much time I was spending there until I sold it and I would pinch myself that I'm on the couch at like 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. I'm like, what is this? Like you people actually do this. They come home and they relax. Like I had no idea what it was. So what I ended up doing is I bought a car wash because I thought that would give me the flexibility to kind of pay my dues in coaching. And the timing was good because Jerry Matthews here at Stockton had just lost two assistants and, you know, working at division three as an assistant, at a lot many schools, is you're basically a volunteer. So I basically volunteered for ten years. I was making like four thousand dollars for ten years, and I treated it as if I was when I was an assistant. I acted as if I was a head coach in terms of my preparation and whatnot. And I just kind of ran the car wash, and I probably ran that into the ground because I took my my volunteer job more seriously.
0: Did it click with you right away? The coaching first couple practices were you like? Yeah, this is this is where I need to be.
1: Yeah, I, I think like the first, I like maybe our first weekend games. I'm like, wow, you know, just like you know, the passion I had and, and like the intensity I, I was, I had on the sideline. Man, I haven't had this in a while. This is awesome. Um, you know, the nerves. Um, being around the kids was great. That experience at the Hurley House. You know, it's funny. I I wanted to have an impact on kids like Coach Hurley had on the kids he had at St. Anthony's. And I wanted to coach kids that needed more than a coach. I wanted a coach that needed a bigger, bigger part of them to get through life. You know, um, I just felt that those kids appreciate you more than the kids that don't really need you, you know? So, that, you know, when I was when I was in high school, I probably had thought about it. But then when I got to college, I didn't just because of the family obligations and, and want my dad to enjoy life. But certainly the minute I started coaching with Coach Matthews, um, it was like, wow, this, this is what I want to do.
0: Was the game different? You know, 10 years, we talk about, we just had a long conversation about kids being different than when we we grew up. Did you feel like there was an adjustment to how things were done? The, the idea that things were becoming more specialized, I'm sure, had started to take hold, stuff like that? Or was it, you know, basketball's basketball and we're fine? Yeah. You
1: know, at that, there was no difference like between 96 and like 2006. Right. When I started I, 95, you know, I coached 95, 96 with Billy Lang at Eustis. And there really wasn't a much of a change in those 10 years, especially with coach Matthews, because he was so old school. Like he'd still coach like it was 96. If he was coaching today, you know, in terms of a lot of the things he would do, the biggest change has been from now to like 10 years you know even six seven years ago like steph curry's changed the game more than than anybody you know just and having guys look at the analytics of the three-point shot and you know i often think back to god i wish i had a green light like these guys have today like i made a lot of threes in my college career and we i didn't have near the green light that we're given today so it's changed more in the last five years. I I think often how Coach Matthews would be able to handle today's game because I don't I don't I don't he would not have liked the ninety point games. He liked it played in the sixties and whatnot.
0: Talk about the impact Jerry Matthews had on you and how how he helped kind of mold you into the coach you are today.
1: Yeah, he was great. He was you know he was so detailed when it comes to certain things then and then not detailed when it comes to others. I think the things that were really important to winning and losing he he focused on. He was he held kids accountable. Like my guys think I can be hard, but man, he was hard on kids, but they loved him because the minute practice was over, he went back to being like, you know, basically a father figure to those guys. And no matter how bad a kid practiced, the switch went off. And and there was compassion and empathy and everything he did. And and I think that's the thing I, I noticed the most is if you have a great relationship with a kid, then you can really, really coach them hard. Um, but you better work pretty hard at that relationship, and he was awesome at that. that. That that was just great strength, really.
0: What was the first challenge you faced as a coach that was something you never thought you would have to deal with? Because I think with with young players, young coaches, you're everything is focused on getting ready for the next game or get, or practice today. But there are so many things that come into play with college athletics. Was there a first thing that you had to deal with that you were like, whoa, I didn't think I'd have to worry about this?
1: No, you know, I mean, I feel like I've been lucky in a way. Like we had some problems when I was an assistant and, and that that's, see, that's, that's another huge change. Kids are better behaved today than they were 15 or 20 years ago. Like they're not near as social, right? Like they're a lot more likely to just go back to their room and like do nothing. I think marijuana is probably more, prevalent, but drinking is less prevalent. Well, you know, call me crazy, but people are better behaved when they're stoned than they are when they're drunk. <laughs> like they just are. So we've had a we've had so few problems. Like we have a really behaved team. Now knock on wood. Now I'll probably end up having to deal with a problem this week, but I've been lucky in that regard. Uh, we did have some 2008, 9, 10 in that time where there'd be bar fights and this and that. And when it happened down here, it, it hit the newspapers because they were Stockton basketball players. So that, in fact, I, I was in Mexico when a big thing went down and um, I was ha- I was getting married. So here I had the phones ringing off the hall. hall. The girl from the Atlantic City Press wants to know about this fight. <laughs> and I'm, like, you know, I'm like putting like an outfit on to get married. So that might have been an aha moment. As a head coach, I haven't I haven't had it too much. It's more or less coaching at Division Three. You're not just a coach. You're you're worried about the meals. You're worried about, you know, a lot of the administrative stuff. So that, that could have been it. Just realizing there's a lot more to the job than just knowing basketball. And, you know, it's working well with others in our department and, and this and
0: that. You were an assistant and associate head coach for about 10 years before you took over the program. Was there a, a point? where you started to think that, or even a conversation with Jerry Matthews or with the administration that at a certain point, this will be yours. Was it ever kind of talked about like that?
1: I don't know if it was that definitive because you're still dealing with a state school. So you don't know what can happen, you know, and it's division three. Now we had a ton of success. Like and I, you know, I was lucky in a way, like Coach Matthews had just lost two assistants, but the reason he lost them, because they didn't have the time to dedicate anymore. And may they held on a little bit longer and the program wasn't quite as successful from in, in a seven or eight year stretch. And I was able to come in and I worked full time. And I think the fruits of my labor helped right away the program. And I, Coach Matthews, you could tell how much he appreciated having somebody in the office at, you know, one o'clock every day, just thinking about basketball when he was running practices on his own quite a bit, just because guys couldn't get here. So I, you know, I, I think when we had some success, then then people started to notice that, may, you know, I, I had some real value. And I, th- I think, Mike, I have characteristics that are, that are like a head coach. I mean, I really am not afraid to hold guys accountable. And a lot, a lot of coaches struggle with that. A lot of coaches are good cop coaches, which, which you need. You know, you can't hold guys accountable without having somebody that shows a lot of empathy. I wasn't the empathy guy. I was like the hold accountable guy, similar to Coach Matthews. So, we, you know, we were similar in a way. And, and Kevin Brooks was an assistant. And Bob Hutchings, the late great Bob Hutchings, was awesome at putting an arm around guys. So we, we had a great thing going for a while there with two guys that were like drill sergeants and two guys that were the most loving coaches in the world, you know.
0: Part of that run or part of that time when you're an assistant, oh, nine, you guys go to the national championship game. What's that run like and to to get that high up the mountain like I mean that's just it's an incredible accomplishment
1: yeah you know it's funny I I I can remember coach and I you know we rented a we had a bus but I think we had a car too and him and I would drive to certain things like a press conference or something and we would be like can you believe this like we were like pinching ourselves the entire time It was, it was great. It was a great group of kids. I mean, we we were really, really talented. It was just, you know, the right mix of talent and toughness. Yeah, it was, it was great. It was a great year. And, you know, that, that's kind of what we're trying to get back to, right? Like, it's probably why I'm disappointed today that the season ended two Fridays ago, you know, is, you know, I, I wanted that experience again for, for our kids.
0: So when you, you take over in 2016, you talked about, you know, it's being be a state school and you just don't know, you know, but how how do the wheels start to get put in motion? Like, how did it all come together?
1: Well, I, you know, again, Jerry kind of lined it up where he would retire in, in August where they he really didn't have time. You know, and, and Lonnie Folks, the athletic director at the time, was a big advocate of mine, and he had a lot to do with it. And then Dr. Kesselman, the president, you know, for some reason, he saw a ton in me. I, you know, I guess from afar, he was able to see it. And he's been a huge advocate of mine, which if you have the president, I mean, I, I guess that's pretty good. So I was named the interim, and then we did that in interim year. We had a good year. We didn't have a great year, but we did win the ECAC championship. It was the first time in the school. The school's ever done that, and that. I can remember because we, then we were between ADs, uh, Lonnie left and we had a new AD and we were in our summer, um, we have like a summer um, orientation for all the athletic staff. And the president was there and Dr. Kesselman said, and, you know, Scott's been in the interim for a year, but that'll change this week, you know, and I, so I didn't have the interview for it. <laughs> which which I, I still really am grateful for that, like just the, the stress of interviewing for something you really want. um, And you think you deserve, too, that I'm not sure how we're to come off in the interviews just from the stress. And um, every time we're doing interviews now with new coaches and whatnot, I always feel bad for them because it looks like a really stressful thing, and I thank God I didn't have to go through it.
0: So when you go from associate head coach to well, interim, but basically take over the program, and you talked about, you know, you had no problems holding people accountable. Was there any change in dynamic with the kids on the roster? I had, I think I had to, my first year or two. First of all, you're, you're replacing a legend, and that's
1: not easy. And even though, like in the last five or six years that I was associate head coach, I did most of the game coaching because Coach Matthews had a bad knee. So he really couldn't get up and down. So I coached the games for five or six years. So I was ready for game coaching. But you know, I, I we still had a culture that was kind of his, kind of mine, and we needed to to get. You know, there were some guys on the roster I basically had to get rid of that were really good players because that they, they didn't have my. I was a little more organized and coach in in my culture and my core values, and I wasn't gonna. I wasn't going to bend my core values for one or two guys. Everybody's core values should be different. You know, your core values should be what your personality is. And these guys didn't live my core values. I'm not sure coach even thought that deep into it. You know, he just took who you had and he was great at holding whoever it was. But I wanted guys that love basketball as much as I did. I wanted guys that love camaraderie as much as I did. And I, I think the forefront of our program, it just became we wanted a team that was connected. And I had certain guys that weren't connected and didn't love it as much as me. So I think once we got rid of that, that's when the, the program flourished.
0: And you talked about those, you know, several years as your associate, you're kind of coaching the games up and you're the guy up and down. Do you remember the first time you drew something up, made an adjustment, did something tactically, that like made the difference between a win and a loss like was is there one memory of the first time you did that and if so what did that feel like cuz that's just got to be an incredibly gratifying moment now you you
1: know like i think about it now because now as as the head coach you you don't think as clear as you did when you were when i was an assistant like when i was an assistant i i was able to focus on like I really focused on matchups and, 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 and you know, I, I knew exactly what matchup we wanted to attack because I wasn't worried about a million other things. Coach Matthews was awesome at holding guys accountable for not boxing out, not sprinting the floor. Not, so he took care of those details. In a lot of cases, that's the stuff that wins the game. You know, when guys weren't playing hard enough, he would hold them accountable for that. And I just focused on, on the offense for the most part. I mean I, I mean, I can remember, yeah, I mean, calling sets in a timeout. I can remember the rules were a little different than that you were able, as a coach, you were able to call a timeout on the fly. And I can remember a few times doing that and coach saying, man, that was a good timeout. Like, because it looked like we were going to lose a loose ball in the corner of, you know of a tight game, so I, you know, I can certainly remember that. But I think back now because I, I don't feel like I, I have a grasp of the games as much as I did then. But it's because I I don't have Coach Matthews. You know, he 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 took care of a lot of the nuts and bolts and the important stuff, and I was just able to focus on the glamorous stuff like calling plays.
0: I'm curious: is the location so close to the Jersey Shore of Stockton? Is that a draw in recruiting? Uh, well, I, we, there's not
1: too many basketball players that surf.
0: Right. You
1: know, <laughs> not the too many NJAC players, but you know, I, I think the Atlantic City campus is starting to generate some interest with kids in like the Philadelphia Catholic League. And, and we still haven't really yeah, you know, it still hasn't become a niche, but there are families that have second homes, maybe in Seattle or Brigantine or whatnot, where they're like, well, maybe we send a kid you know son to Stockton. So I you know I think at some point we're gonna break through and and start getting one or two of those kids. Um, we haven't needed to do it yet, you know, every school has its niche. Our niche is, financial aid, New Jersey kids, because, you know, we can compete with the scholarship schools for those kids. It's a little easier to get in the stock than when you're, when you come from need, you know, at-risk students are a little easier to get admitted. So it's been our niche. Um, our niche has not been middle class kids from Pennsylvania because the private schools are really, really competitive with those kids. So it's funny. You can't fight your niche if you do. You're, you're just like swimming upstream. And I did that at one of my first couple of years. I'm, I'm recruiting kids from like Shawnee. And at the end of the day, we're not going to give them the best financial package, even though we're a lot cheaper to start with. Um, So, you know, I I quickly found out what our niche was and those are the kids I go after the most.
0: I think it's obvious from our conversation, but just how much does kind of being part of this local basketball community mean to you? Just because you've mentioned so many great names and names that anybody, I think even casual basketball fans would know. And you talk about getting texts and and stuff like that. How much do you just kind of relish kind of that personal connection in this circle?
1: Uh, Oh, I mean it's probably the most important thing to me is, is camaraderie and the friendships. And, you know, like Billy Lang and I s- sitting on the beach three or four summers ago, where, you know, like I'm always in his ear about basketball stuff. And he goes, you got it wrong. It's more about your culture. It's more about this. and And he says, you know, he's kind of the one that really got me turned on to the core values and we're talking about him he goes up oh, they have to be who you are and he's telling me who i am he goes you're unbelievably connecting groups of friends like you know like billy's friends with chris because because of my friendship with billy and you know whatnot so i've always been able to like kind of link different guys together so i think that's probably what i enjoy most in life is just just the friendships and you know basketball that is a great way to
0: make friends and to that point, my final question, what is the favorite part of your job? Day-to-day, favorite part of being the head coach at Stockton? The favorite part of
1: being a head coach at Stockton is probably um, graduation day, right? I mean, I, you know, we, we we have a ton of first-generation college students and I, you know, our mission statement is we're teaching life skills through the game of basketball. So I think getting to that graduation is, is the fruits of the labor, you know? So without a doubt, just seeing the kids walking into Boardwalk Hall, there's 9,000 people there and you see like... There's kids with like tears running down their face because they're overwhelmed about the amount of people that, that are there for their graduation. So without without a doubt, graduation day is the best day. Yeah, you know, ba- basketball is great. Ba- but I would I think I would enjoy coaching football or baseball just as much. It's not the sport. It, it's the impact
0: you're having on young people is what what's awesome. Scott Bittner, this was a ton of fun. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate you having me. And that will do it for this week's episode. want to thank Stockton University Head Men's Basketball Coach Scott Bittner for being our guest this week. Now, if you like the podcast, want to help us out, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at one on oneononepod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at mattleon1060. Thanks so much for listening, and be sure to check us out again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.